Well, everybody, good evening. How we doing? How many of y'all are like me wearing your fall gear tonight because it's finally not over 90 degrees? Anybody? Anybody? You get to go to that, that other side of your closet and you're like, all right, new clothes. All right, here we go. Well, hey, glad that you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, turn to chapter uh, three of Genesis. That's where we're going to start tonight. And then if you have time, uh, stick your finger in Titus chapter three. So we're Genesis three, Titus three. We're going we're gonna to hit both of those this evening. I don't know about y'all, but when, when I was a kid, and if I'm honest, even now today, one of my favorite gifts that I got as a kid, and one of my favorite gifts that I get to see my children get were Legos. Legos are the universal gift. I don't care how old you are, because when my kids need help, and I have to help put them together, I am just as happy to do that as I was when I was 10. Like, it, there's just something about getting that box, looking at the picture, pulling out every individual bag, and then getting to work, right? There's just something greatly satisfying. Just that one toy that you get when you're a kid, you play with for about an hour, and then you're excited about it, and then you never look at it again. Because you don't really play with Legos, you just build them, right? But what comes with Legos? This little booklet of directions that tells you this is the plan, this is what you need to do. And so you open the bag, you dump out all the toys or all the pieces, and it's just chaos on the table. Like some of them, they fall on the floor and they disappear forever and ever into the, the eternal abyss of Legoland, wherever it goes. And then all of a sudden, you look at the chaos, and you're like, oh, I remember, I have directions. So you go back over and you look at the directions, you look and see which step you're on, and then you move over to the chaos, and you start bringing some order to the chaos, right? And then you're like, oh, I need to go back to the directions. I don't know what's happening. Let's remember, we have directions. All right, step two, step three, and so on and so on. That's the great thing about Legos, is there's always the directions that we can remember in a moment of, of confusion, or uh-oh, I put something in the wrong place. We can remember, oh, there's directions to go to. And here's why I say that, because th th this idea of remembering is what we're gonna talk about tonight. To remember and have a rhythm, just like with Legos, we look at the directions, and then we go put it together. And we go back to the directions, and then we go put it together. Because here's what remembering does. Remembering that we have directions. It reorients us to where we are in the project, right, when it comes to Legos. Like, oh, this is where I'm at. This is the step I'm on. All right, here's the next step. It reorients our mind so we don't get chaotic and confused and crazy and just throw it all off the table, right? Anybody ever done that? I was the board game guy. Just when I would lose, just, oh man, it was, it was not a good sight. So here's what I wanna talk about tonight. The rhythm of remembering. The rhythm of remembering. Like just, I think it was yesterday, right? was September 11th, and we saw a lot of social media posts, never forget, remember. Why do we do that? Whether it's Legos or something very serious, we do that because it reorients us. I mean, heck, a lot of you guys probably were not born when that happened, or you were very little, you've heard stories, you've seen pictures, but I was there. I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting out at Lake Hefner, on a bench right next to the lighthouse. And as I drove back to my house that morning, I heard it on the radio. And so when I see those pictures and say, remember, it takes me back to a very specific moment in my life. I knew where I was, I know what the weather was like, I remember the feeling of walking into my house, turning on the TV and being like, oh my goodness. 
And so why do we do that? We remember because it reorients us in a moment. In our society, when we think about something like 9-11, it reorients us to a place in time where our entire country was unified. We knew exactly what had happened. We knew exactly who we were. And we knew we all, everyone knew exactly what we needed to do. And so we remember to reorient. Oh, remember when. Let's, you know, it's that idea of like, let's get back to that place. And not, not like the tragedy of like the unity and the, and the, and, and the mission and, and, and the, the, the view of, hey, this is what we need to do. Let's do it together. The love and care that we showed one another. And so this idea of remembering is a powerful rhythm to our life. And so here's what we're going to do tonight is the rest of this series for the next, I think it's three or four weeks, we are going to give you a lot of rhythms in scripture that we see that are very prescriptive or at least suggestive of, hey, God has created you to be a person that lives by rhythm. All right, our hearts have rhythm, our breath has rhythm. That's what we talked about last week, the, the, the rhythm of God's creation. If you didn't, he, weren't here, go back, listen to it. It kicks off our whole series. But before we get to the next several weeks, a lot of very practical rhythms that you may want to look into, that you may want to consider for your life, that maybe God has made a rhythm for you relationally, that God has made you a rhythm spiritually, and that maybe God has a rhythm of how we are to respond to circumstances. But before we get to the whole, hey, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Because that's what we do. I don't know about y'all, but when I opened a Lego, when I was a kid, I'd open the box and be like, I don't need the directions. Let's just do it. Right, gentlemen, that's how we tick. We will ask later. And so tonight what I want to do is before we get to the to-dos, before we get busy trying to do something, I want to bring us back and I want to remember where all of this starts. Like there's probably some of you that come every week. And we sing songs, we put words on the screen. You're like, why do we do this? This is weird. Why are we singing? Why, why are some people raising their hands? Like when we go to a football game, we know why we're raising our hands. We know why we're screaming at the top of our lungs because our team just did something great. And I just wonder if the way that we worship or lack thereof is a signal that we have forgotten the greatness of God and the goodness and the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I wanna to do tonight is I wanna remember with you. I wanna remember why, who, what has been done by the God of the universe on your behalf, on my behalf, on the behalf of all of humanity. Because it is greater than any touchdown, any pick six, anything we can imagine, this is better. And so what I want to do tonight is before we get into the what do we do, I want to start with what has been done. What is the gospel? What is it not and why does it matter? Because if we don't know where we're starting, then the worship and the study of God's word and the implementing biblical rhythms into our life, like why would you do it? Like if we don't understand the gospel of Jesus, then at best we are going to give you some life hacks from God's word that might last as long as a New Year's resolution. A few weeks. But when we know and we remember who God is and what he has done for us and what he has invited us into, 
it reorients our heart, it reorients our mind, and it reorients our lives. You see, the gospel changes everything. It changes everything. Not in a bad way, in a wonderful way. And so we need to reorient ourselves tonight by remembering our foundation as a Christian And if you are not a Christian here tonight, welcome. I am so glad that you're here. We have prayed for you. We have prayed over you that God would speak to you. We have prayed for the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of those who do not see the goodness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer tonight for our volunteers and our staff, we've been praying for you, those who are believers, that tonight you would remember the goodness of God and the greatness of the gospel. Because that is why we're here. We're not here to make a Christian country club. We're not here to just keep our our Tuesday nights busy because nothing else is happening on a Tuesday night. Which is, by the way, why we pick Tuesday night. (laughs) There's literally no football on Tuesdays any time of the year. Tuesday nights. And so tonight we're going to talk about the rhythm of remembering. So if you were here last week, we were in Genesis chapter 1. We talked about the rhythms of creation, the what God created. We see rhythm in what he created. We see rhythm in how God created, and we see rhythm in who God created. And so tonight, we're going to jump to Genesis chapter 3. And here's the image that I get of of hopefully what the message is tonight. How many of you guys have been on a roller coaster before? Anybody? All right. Like, be proud of it. Let me see. Let me see. All right. the, The majority of the room. How, well, let me, maybe a better question. How many of you have never been on a roller coaster before? One? Okay, well, let's get her on a roller coaster in 2024. Here we go. Man, I'm so sorry. You got to get on a roller coaster. They're fantastic. But here, here, here's my thought. is that, that There's this feeling that you get when you ride a roller coaster. Um, I remember the first roller coaster I went on, there was a loop. Like I was in line. I waited for like an hour and I got to the, the little gate and I was like, I can't do it. I walked right past and right through. I was like, can't do it, can't do it. I was scared. Right? There's, there's a pattern of emotions you go through on a roller coaster, right? You get in, you're excited. You're like, all right, let's go. Pull the bar down, get your hands up if you're that person. Um, but then you start going up that first hill and there's that pit in your stomach. You're like, oh no. Oh man, Okay. Hope the track doesn't break. Hope that my, this thing stays tight. Like there's this moment of a little bit of panic, but that's part of the adrenaline rush, isn't it? And then, so there, there's a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety. There's a little bit of like, oh no, what have I done? And then you crest the top of that first roller coaster and you're like, oh my gosh. And if you're in the front, you're looking down like, oh no. <laughs> I mean, your, your stomach drops. And then you and it's like, this is the greatest feeling ever. And you pull into the end of the road coach, you're like, that was awesome! Let's do it again, and we get back on. So we're gonna do this. We're gonna ride the roller coaster of the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. And there's gonna be parts of it that you're gonna be like, I don't wanna talk about this. This is uncomfortable. There's a pit in my stomach when, I, when we bring this up. But there's gonna be moments where we're like, let's go! This is incredible, let's do it again, talk about it again, let's read it again, let's sing another song. Because it is the greatest news that humanity has ever heard. But it can be a theological roller coaster. So let's look at Genesis chapter three. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'm gonna read the first part, 
And then I'm gonna jump to the end of at, at chapter 22, or verse 22. So starting in verse one, this is the story of the fall of mankind. God has created, Adam and Eve are on the scene, and then we see Satan step into the picture, and temptation comes in. Here we go. Now the serpent, Satan, was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He, was, he said to the woman, did God really say you can eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden. But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Verse four, no, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. All good reasons. So she took some of its fruit and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, God, walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, this is so typical, the woman you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And so God turns to Eve and says, so the Lord God asked the woman, what is it that you have done? Typical, the woman said, the serpent. He deceived me and I ate. Verse 20, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. The Lord said, since the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat and live forever. So the Lord God sent him away from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man out, stationed the cherubim and the flaming whir whirling sword east of the Garden of Eden to guard the way of the tree of life. What a picture. This is the picture of the fall of humanity. We just got done talking last week about the rhythms of God's good and perfect creation. And now all of a sudden something has taken the order and the rhythm and turned it into chaos. But then if you flash forward to Titus chapter three, right, where this is the beginning, Genesis three, and Titus three is like my, my most recent favorite gospel passage where Paul's writing to Titus and he wraps up the entire story of the Bible in just a few verses. He says this, at one time, we too were foolish, 
disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, having been made right, justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. You have the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. And then in Titus 3, you have the fastest and my favorite explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That this is the story of the entire Bible from the beginning to the end. This is the story. God created, man rebelled. God entered the world because of his kindness and his love and his mercy and he has redeemed his people and saved us. And then one day in Revelation, it says he will return. He will return and he will make all things right and evil will have its day before the judge. And so we need to remember, number one, we need to remember the gospel is good news, not simply good advice. The gospel is good news. Often, maybe we, I, treat it like good advice. Like, I will take that under advisement. That's, that's a good word. I'll think about it. And we treat God's word and we treat the gospel like some sort of self-help book. And that is not what the Bible is. It's the, it's the book of, of direction and story and narrative that we go back to to reorient ourselves to God's kingdom and God's purposes that then allows us to go live our life for God's kingdom and for his glory and ultimately for our good as well. You see, advice has to do with what we do. It's about applying information to a way of life. You see, the gospel is not a way of life. The gospel of Jesus Christ is something that has been done for us. Let me say that again. The gospel is not a lifestyle choice. The gospel, the good news is what the gospel means. The good news of Jesus is something that has been done for you. It is not something you are doing. You are not doing the gospel. The gospel is done. And so Christianity is not a lifestyle choice. It's not a way of life. It is a, it is a gift from God, creator almighty, that has been done for you and has been done for me. If you came home, if you, went, if you went home tonight, think about this. If you went home tonight and you walked into your house or apartment, wherever you live, and someone, while you were gone, didn't rob you, and that's what I'm saying, but they came into your house and they vacuumed and they dusted and they did all of your dishes and they took them out of the dishwasher and put them all the way in the correct spot and you went into your bedroom and your bed was actually made, pillows were fluffed, 
you would lose your mind. <laughs> I would, I'd be like, this is awesome. You know what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't start cleaning. It's already done. The duty and the job and the responsibility, it's all been taken care of. That's the gospel in everyday language. God has done something for you. That you don't need to come in after him and be like, oh, but my lifestyle now will actually finish the job. The gospel of Jesus is not good advice, it is good news. Let me add to it, the gospel is not church attendance. The gospel is not rise and grind and obey God to please him so he's not mad at you. The gospel is not biblical community and friendship. Those are good things, but they're not gospel. That's not the good news of the, of the New Testament. And this is the one I had to learn the hard way over a long period of time. The gospel is not behavior modification. It is not you just be a good person. And if you're good enough, then you're a good Christian and God will be happy with you. If the gospel is something that has been done for us versus something that we choose to do, a lifestyle, a way of life, then that means it, it changes everything. It changes everything. If you walked into your house and your apartment thinking, I'm gonna go clean, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do laundry, I gotta fold it, and you walk in and it's all done. It changes everything. It changes your whole night. But somehow we hear the, the, the God's word and we think, hey, I gotta get busy. I gotta finish the job. And we miss the gospel of Jesus. We forget what he has done. And we start to inadvertently celebrate what we're doing. We forget what he has done. When we come in to worship every Tuesday, when you go to church and worship on Sunday, have you at any point that morning remembered what God has done for you before we worship him? We can easily begin to depart from what the true gospel is and focus and celebrate on what we are doing And so we need to remember a couple things when it comes to this idea of good news versus good advice. First, we need to remember that something infinitely wonderful has happened to us. That's why John 3, 16, the verse that we all know. For God, creator of the universe, originator of all things, God Almighty has done something for you. For he so loved you, he loved the world, that it moved him to action that benefits you eternally. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is what the gospel is, it has been done for you. That's the good news. Psalm 77, the psalmist writes, I will remember the Lord's works. Yes, I will remember your ancient wonders. I will remember and reflect on all you have done and meditate on your actions. Next, we need to remember that good news is meant to be proclaimed. Good news is meant to be proclaimed. Guys, we proclaim stuff all the time. 
that's just mediocre. It's just not okay. It's just like, it's pretty good. I'm going to tell people about it. Good news is designed to be proclaimed. Romans 10.4, Paul writes this, but how, how can anyone, they call on him to save themselves unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they have not heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them, unless we proclaim the good news? How will anyone know? And so we need to lastly remember the gospel is good news, not simply good advice. Now let's go back to Genesis chapter three, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam. This is at the end of chapter three. It's their exit of the garden. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. What a mercy of God. He said, I cannot let you live forever in this state. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove them out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a, flame, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so my second point tonight is remember the gospel is good news that we have been rescued. The gospel is good news to be proclaimed that we have been rescued so what does this mean? Well, if we, if we need rescuing and we have been rescued, that means we have been in a, put in a place of peril. We live east of Eden. We live, we are born into a world east of Eden, outside of God's perfect creation. We are in a position of peril. We need rescuing. What do we need rescuing from? You ever wonder that? What did, what did Jesus actually save us from? Like, your life's pretty good, right? It's not bad. It's not, like, what, what did he actually save us from? Have you ever actually thought about that? I wanna bring up two things tonight. I wanna show you two things from God's word that Jesus and the gospel story, the good news has actually saved you from. This is the part of the roller coaster that's going up. This is the part that's gonna be like, ugh. Andy's using words that I do not like. This is a topic that's uncomfortable. Here we go, all right? But don't worry, we're gonna crest and we're gonna go down and it's gonna be awesome. All right, so here we go. First Thessalonians 1.10. Paul is writing, he's starting his letter to the church in Thessalonica. He's like, hey, you guys are killing it. You're doing great. You're following the Lord. And then he says, therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from your idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, here it is, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Ugh. Wrath. Jesus has rescued us from the coming wrath of God. 
You know, we oftentimes make the mistake in church, and I'm just as guilty, if we spend a lot of time talking about God's goodness and love and mercy and grace, but you know what we don't like to talk about? This. The wrath that is coming. And so the first thing that, God, that Jesus is saving us and rescuing us from is God's wrath. Now, when you think about that word, what do you think about? Think about the image you think in your head of wrath. I don't know what it is. I know what I think. Here's what I think. And my bet is most of us are in this ballpark of what we think the word wrath looks like, feels like. It looks and feels like uncontrolled and unhinged anger. That's what I think of when I think of the word wrath. Man, I don't, want, I don't want to be under their wrath. That's unhinged, man. It's out of control, and it is dangerous. I want to challenge that thought. That God's word, knowing who God is, and that he is holy and good and loving and merciful, but also just, that maybe God's wrath, it's not really anger. What if there's no anger involved? What if, because God is good and loving and just, his wrath is simply the good and loving and righteous response to evil? Let me frame it up this way. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. I don't even care. I don't even care enough to respond. Now, as a parent, as a friend, I think we could say, hey, a good friend will respond to evil in my friend's life. I will respond to evil in my children's life. And if I didn't, I would not be a good father. You would not be a good friend. If you saw evil happening in the life of someone you love, and you were like, oh, well, good luck with that. You'd be like, what kind of friend is that? I had an experience that changed my view of this idea of what we expect God to do and what we expect God not to do. Because I think our first reaction was like, man, I would love God not to have wrath. That, that, that sounds like a good option. I would just matter mercy and the love and the grace. But when I first moved to Oklahoma City, I was working with high school students. And there was this one student that changed my life, literally, I'm not being hyperbolic, changed my life forever. I was trying to get to know my small group and I picked him up after school to bring him home and we stopped by Sonic to get a drink and, and we were just talking, I was introducing myself, we were just you know, shooting the breeze and, and here's what I learned. I learned that he was 14 years old, he was a freshman in high school. And he went on to tell me that every day he gets home, there's $40 on the table from his mom. And that for the last month or two, he's taken that $40, grabbed the keys to the car, got in the car, went up and picked up his friends and drove all over the city spending the money. He was breaking the law. And I'm like, man, that sounds like, that's how, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't know what to say. I was like, uh, <laughs> do I rebuke him right now? Like, I don't know you. But we were having this conversation, and, and I'm not lying, I'm not trying to be dramatic. This, this happened. I'm sitting in the driver's seat at Sonic, we're drinking, he's telling me this story, and I'm thinking, man, this is like every teenager's dream. 
money every day, keys to the car. He's going out, driving out, staying out late at night because his mom worked nights. And he wasn't getting in trouble. But I saw a tear drop down his face. And I was, and I was at that point in my life, tears made me very uncomfortable. Not, not so much now. Um, God's been good to me. But I had the wherewithal to ask him this question. And this is just a good question to ask when someone shows tears. Just where's that tear coming from? What's going on? And when I asked that question, he lost it. I mean, he started crying. And I said, what? Dude, like, I'm 23 years old. I have no idea what's happening. And he said this, and it blew my mind. He said, he's an Andy. I just wish my mom loved me enough to ground me. What? I didn't say that out loud. I was inside. I was like, "You got to be kidding me! You're a 14 year old, and you want discipline. You want a righteous response. Why?" And I said, "Why do you? Why do you want her, your mom to ground you?" And this is what he said: "As God is my witness, he said, I just at least I would know my mom cared." Now, I know that mom probably thought she was doing the best she could, but that changed my mind, the way I view God's wrath. It's not unhinged. It's not uncontrolled. It is God's good and loving and righteous and just response to evil. He is a good father. When he sees good or evil, he is not indifferent And so Jesus saves us, as Paul says, from the coming wrath. When one day God will judge everyone who has ever lived and he will bring justice. Genesis 3, the second thing that Jesus saves us from, we see this all over Genesis 3, is the alienation from God. He saves us from being alienated and removed from the presence of God. Because that's what happens in Genesis 3. God creates, he provides, he gives a command and an instruction, and they say, hey, I'm gonna go my own way. And, 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 and it brings chaos back into the picture. It brings rebellion and sin back into human existence. And God is holy. And so he says, I have, you have to leave. Your sin has now separated, alienated you from me. And we see three examples of different types of alienation in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.10, we see psychological alienation. In, in, in Genesis 3, 7 and 8 and verse 16, we see relational alienation. And then in Genesis 3, 16 through 19, we see physical alienation. Let me walk you through these. Genesis 3.10, we see shame enter the picture. God asks Adam, where are you? And he says, I heard you, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Shame entered the world right here. Guys, I don't know about you, but when I do something bad, I don't like walk forward and be like, hey, here I am, this is what I just did. It's still with us, we hide. We hide and we hide and we try to manage and we try to control because of the shame if someone found out what we did. So now we are psychologically alienated from the Lord. 
Our shame controls us. Our shame directs us instead of an intimate and trusting relationship with God. And then we see relational alienation. Both, like basically, here's, here's, this is not a theological term, but every relationship screwed up from here on out. Their relationship with God is screwed up. They hide from him. They lie to him. They make excuses. Their relationship with one another is screwed up. Right, because what does Adam do? He blames his wife. It's her fault. Conflict. The blame game begins. And so we see psychological, relational, and physical alienation. And then you see in, in verses 16 through 19 that there's a physical curse on the earth. The creation is now cursed. And so why is this important? It's important because we can start to think that maybe Jesus died to rescue me from having a bad day, that Jesus died to rescue me from discomfort or suffering instead of what is act, he's actually rescuing you from. God's wrath, his response to evil, and the eternal separation from him. That's what Jesus is saving you from. He's not saving you to micromanage your life and to make you feel guilty about doing bad things. He's saving you from the coming wrath of a good and just God. And one day he will bring justice. You see, the bad news, or sorry, Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors and pastors, wrote it this way. The problem is a vertical one, us and the Lord. That's the problem that plays itself out in the horizontal world. All human problems are just symptoms and our separation from God is the cause. That, you need to write that one down. When you have conflict, when things here on the horizontal world are, are icky and hurtful and painful, it is a reminder because it's a symptom of the real cause of the problem is that humanity is separated from the goodness of God. And so Jesus said, no more. I am coming and I am going to make a way for us to be right with God. To save us from that alienation. John 3, 16 and 17. We never talk about verse 17. We're, we're gonna talk about it tonight. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn, but to save the world through him. Jesus was sent on a rescue mission, not a condemnation mission. You see, we're in the season of saving. There will be a season of judgment. We are in the season of saving. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He came to bridge the gap to bring God and humanity back together through his blood on the cross, paid in full for you. The good news of the gospel is that something infinitely, eternally wonderful has happened for us. That's why we sing. That's why we worship. That's why we follow and submit and yield our lives to Christ. And so we need to remember that God has rescued us from our position of peril. God has rescued us. 
That brings me to my last point, is that the gospel is the good news of Jesus reconciling our relationship with God. The gospel is the good news that we are to proclaim of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reconciling, making right what has been made wrong. He brings us back together with God through his death and resurrection. You see, Jesus' righteousness has been credited to you. He took his perfection and he said, my perfection is your perfection. I've come to save you, not micromanage you. It's not our behavior that makes us right with God. Man, I wish teenage Andy would have heard that. It's not our behavior that makes us right with God, but the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that makes us right with God. I talked about reading directions to reorient ourselves. I'm just gonna read some scripture and let it speak for itself to reorient how we think about Jesus. Romans 3, 22 through 26 says this. We, humanity, are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, our trust, our confidence in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We've been infected. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this. He made us right through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People, you and I are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead at you and me and our grandchildren and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness. For he himself is fair and just. And he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not your behavior that makes you right with God. It is Jesus Christ and his blood that has paid the penalty for our sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made his son sin so that we, you, could be made right with God. Why is this important? Because in Ephesians 2.9, Paul writes, salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done so none of us can boast about it. That's why it's important, because we will try really, really, really hard to do the gospel 
instead of receive the gospel because the work is done. And so what do we do about this? We put our faith and belief and confidence and trust in the hands of Jesus Christ and we follow him. So in review, remember the gospel is good news, not simply good advice. The gospel is good news that we have been rescued and the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ reconciling our relationship with God. That's the gospel. That's why we sing. That's why we get together every Tuesday night and every Sunday in small groups. That's why we pray. That's why we do all the things. We don't do all the things so that God will save us. We do all the things because God has saved us. He has rescued us. So what do we do with this as we leave tonight? Remember the good news. It's good news. You can worship and smile at the same time. You can worship and raise your hands and worship him with joy because the good news of the gospel is just that. It is good news, especially those who know that they are lost and we need saving. There's nothing greater when you're a child than finding yourself lost from your parents and you're freaking out and you realize, I don't know where mom and dad are. And then you see them. And it is nothing but joy on both sides. Parents are relieved and they swoop their kid up and they're like, yes, we're back together. That's the gospel. Your heavenly father, what was lost has now been found. He sent Jesus to redeem his children. It's good news. We can worship with joy. We can live with joy. The joy of our salvation. Number two, remember the good news of the gospel daily because we are forgetful. We're forgetful. I would challenge you to memorize Titus three, three through eight. You got John three sixteen, Fantastic. Add Titus three. When we memorize, when we put to memory the good news of the gospel, we can remind ourselves often, man, I know I was once this and this and this and this, but when the goodness of God appeared, he saved me. And we need to remember daily the good news of the gospel of Jesus because it reorients us. Remembering reorients us. It puts our heart and our mind back on track. And then lastly, I would just ask you a question, especially to those who are not Christians. Or maybe you thought you were a Christian but maybe the Lord and the Holy Spirit have revealed that no, you're just a church attender. Here's my question for you. Are you ready to say that you are a Christian? Are you ready to give your trust and your confidence and your life to the God who has sought you out when you were lost and said, I want you back? I sent my son to redeem you. Are you ready? Maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, maybe tonight as you go to bed, are you ready to say, I am a follower of Jesus? 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who has done something infinitely wonderful for me, and he has invited me in. Are you ready? If not, when will you? When will you be ready? What else do you need to know? Hear my encouragement. Our prayer team will be down at the front. Come talk to us. Bring us your questions. We've been praying for you. So do not be afraid. Do not let your pride keep you in your seat in a quick exit. This is eternal stuff we're talking about. We're gonna leave these on the screen. My last encouragement to you tonight is this, that the rhythm of remembering is a powerful rhythm, especially when you're remembering the goodness and the justice and the mercy and grace of God towards you, what he has done for you, what he has rescued you from. Think about it. Marinate on that idea, what he has saved you from. And let those thoughts, let those remembering thoughts reorient you. Your life, your thoughts, your fears, your plans, your anxieties. That if God is that good, what do we have to worry about? God is with you. And he loves you. And he has rescued you. And he says, come, follow me. And I will give you life and life to the full, both today and for eternity. So are you ready? Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you. God, thank you. Thank you for, for not giving up on us in the garden. Thank you for not kicking us out and saying, well, good luck. Thank you for your patience and your kindness that you would say, no, 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 not so fast. I'm going to send my son. God, thank you for the cross that you have rescued and redeemed us from your wrath and from being separated from your love and your mercy and your grace and your kindness for eternity. Thank you for saving us from that. Holy Spirit, would you move in us would you awaken us to the reality that we are living? That life is more about the money and it's more, it's more than the experiences and it's more than the friends and it's more than the job and it's more than the pleasure. It's about you and life with you. Would you awaken our souls to the reality and the urgency of the good news of the gospel of Jesus? thank you, Lord. Would you work in us? And that would our praise in a moment, would our song and our, of our soul be worthy of your goodness and your majesty? In your son's name, amen.